Thank you, Wayne. All right, well, good afternoon, everybody. Yeah, we're in the afternoon now. Uh, So we are wrapping up the King's lessons we've been doing for the last, this will be week number five. Uh, I think we started with Solomon. Uh, Last week, we got all the way to Hezekiah. Uh, And so I just want to kind of trace through time real fast to kind of make sure we all know where we are. It's going to bother me. Uh, So we all know where we are uh, in this lesson. So in the lesson last week, Hezekiah faces down the Assyrian Empire who is, you know, trying to come in and invade Jerusalem. And we talked about how, you know, that was, you know, actually backed up with some artifacts uh, that we can find in the London Museum today. And just let you know what happens after that. So Hezekiah makes a bit of an unwise move at the very end of his reign, and he decides to let these, you know, Babylonian envoys come by and see the palace and the temple and everything that's in Jerusalem. And he shows them, he shows the Babylonians these storehouses of gold and silver and all the things that they've acquired. He's got some pride in all the things that are kind of under his command. And, you know, prophets let him know that was not a smart move. He just showed the Babylonians all that they can come and pillage at some point in time. And it kind of sows the seeds for what's going to happen later. Eventually, the Babylonians, uh, together with the Medes, rise up and they take over the Assyrian Empire as the Assyrians start to crumble late in their reign. Uh, The Babylonians, under the king you guys will all remember, Nebuchadnezzar, eventually come and they sack Jerusalem. And they destroy the temple, and they carry off a lot of the Jewish people back to Babylon. So the story of Daniel uh, was a great example of what occurred there. Daniel is one of those young men who came back to Babylon. And so we see the Babylonians uh, reign for a really long time. We see God humble Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Some interesting things happen. And then towards the end, we see this Persian empire that just comes out of nowhere gathers allies with the Medes again, and the Persians and the Medes come in and they take over Babylon, or they take over the Babylonians. Uh, at this point in time, we see in the Bible some pretty cool things happen. This Persian emperor, uh, em- the, the king of Persia, this guy, the guy named Cyrus the Great, was actually a very awesome guy in, in terms of world history. He did some incredible things. God did a lot through him. Uh, and so we see the story of, the, of God using the Persian Empire and some of the different kings of the Persian Empire play out. Uh, in the story of Esther, we see God use a young, vulnerable Jewish woman to really influence the king of Persia to, to make sure the Jewish people were not annihilated yet again. Uh, and then we see that the Persians allow the Jewish people to go back to their homeland and start to rebuild Jerusalem. So the story of Ezra, where the temple begins to be rebuilt, the story of Nehemiah, where the wall is rebuilt, uh, we see the remnant has been preserved. God has, has made sure his people could go back to their land in a little bit of sovereignty. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of autonomy there. And you see the people really go back and discover uh, the book. They become the people of the book, right? You, you see a, a reverence for God's word that really had escaped God's people uh, for generations to come. 
And from the time the Old Testament ends to the time the New Testament begins, I think we've got about 400 years or so uh, of time in between. But what you have in this time is that the Persians were in, in control, let the people go back. They start to set up their homeland. The Jewish people start to populate again. Uh, and then you see the rise of the Greeks who defeat the Persians. Then you see the rise of the Romans. Uh, we have a little brief stint in history where the Jewish people uh, govern themselves and the Hasmonean, Hasmonean uh, phase. And then we get to the time of Christ where the Romans are in control but the Jewish have a lot. The Jewish people have a lot of sway in kind of how things are run in Israel or in this overall land that we're talking about. And so you see, the Romans are very careful about how they institute government, how they institute rule. They give a little bit of autonomy to the Jewish people. Uh, they instill governors. They, they just work a little bit differently. Because remember, the Jewish people have done a very good job over time of. of of gaining some control in that area, gaining some control of the trade in that area. They've become fairly prosperous. Uh, and so even though it, it's a, the, the Romans are in charge, there's this interesting balance that has to be played between the Roman government you know, in Rome and what actually is happening kind of with the boots on the ground of how the Jewish people are, are being governed on a daily basis. So that's the time frame we're in. You're really the height of the Roman Empire. Some incredible things are happening in Rome. Uh, you, you are seeing the Jewish people have come under the command or under the lead of this guy named King Herod. And this is the time that God decides to bring the Messiah into the world. And so what I want to talk about today is, is I want to get into the Christmas story just a bit today. And we're going to talk about a, an interesting part of the Christmas story that, that probably isn't discussed too often in the Christmas Eve services. We're going to talk about that odd little part of the, part of the story where this guy named Herod the Great tries to kill all of the young boys that are under two years old in Bethlehem. And what, what I really want you guys to come away with today is I want you to have a better appreciation of who Herod is, uh, because he is a fascinating figure in history. But if you, if you don't understand Herod, you're not going to understand why what occurred in the Christmas story is just so miraculous. And I think God reveals a lot about his strength and his power uh, and his glory in the way he brought the Messiah uh, to come into this world. Now, I'm going to caveat this lesson with this. Uh, I, I had to substitute teach on Sunday morning for a group of young married, uh, a, a young married class. So a bunch of people, and they're probably early to mid-20s who uh, are in the church and, you know, engaged in Sunday school and all that. And so I got asked to substitute teach. And so I go, all right, well, let me just go ahead and develop my Herod lesson for Sunday. And I'll go ahead and teach it on them and get a dry run with that class before I have to come and teach you guys. About halfway through the class, as I'm teaching these guys, I'm looking at their faces, and I realize they care a lot less about this lesson than I do. Uh, I was very excited about the lesson, and I thought I was bringing it. Like, I thought I was teaching well. And I'm looking at their faces going, they just don't get it. So um, this may be good, this may be bad. Uh, but I've, I've switched it up just a little bit just to try not to have the look on your all's faces that I saw on their faces uh, Sunday morning. So what I want to do, we're going to get into Herod, but it's very important anytime we study the Bible 
that we try to understand what the original readers of the text, what the original people in the story, what they were experiencing, what they were feeling. If we can get into the shoes of the Jewish people at this time as they're reading this story and and understanding the context, it'll help us better understand uh, what's going on. So just make sure we, we try to put ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish people you know, they knew that a Messiah would one day come. The, the prophecies in the Old Testament, some of which we've covered in here, are not ambiguous. You know, a Messiah is going to one day come. And if we go through all the text about what the Messiah is going to be like, what's going to happen, you know, there's a few things we know. Uh, the first thing we know, or we, we talked about at the very end of our lesson last week with what the prophet Micah said about where the Messiah would one day come. If you recall in Micah chapter 5, you know, right at this time of the lesson we were talking about last week, Micah tells the people, you know, God's using Micah to tell the people that he says, you know, you little clan of, you little town of Bethlehem, you know, you, you who are too small to even be among the clans of Judah, it is from you who I'm going to bring forth a ruler for Israel. And, and when you come forth, this ruler is going to be of old, of ancient of days, right? So the people knew that from Bethlehem, the Messiah was going to come. But they also really expected that when the Messiah came, that this Messiah was going to be a conquering king in the way of David, right? They, they thought that, that uh, he would, the Messiah would come, would, would gain a lot of political power, military power, and would overthrow the Romans, and they would have complete autonomy in their rule, kind of ethnocentric uh, government going on. Uh, that, that's what they, they viewed, Now, that being said, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that, right? The Bible talks about the Messiah a lot, and we know from the Bible that the Messiah is going to come both as a suffering servant and then as a conquering king. You go to Isaiah, and we see very clearly the prophet Isaiah, who was around during the time of Hezekiah, lets us know the Messiah will be a suffering servant. He says this in Isaiah chapter 53 about the Messiah who would one day come. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and his wounds we are healed. The, we see this over and over again, too. So we'll see a suffering servant concept come up about the Messiah. But, but the Jewish people really had it in their mind, not because of the text, but because of kind of what they all felt was going to happen, and that kind of became rule to them, that he was going to first come as this conquering king. Whereas we know the conquering king is going to come in Jesus' second coming, uh, as told in the book of Revelation. So, God decides to do something you know, very different from what the Jewish people were expecting. You know, you know, the Messiah doesn't come as a conquering king. He comes as an infant in the most vulnerable of forms. And, and I, I want you to, to understand that that is just completely contrary to what the people expected. But what God does is he reveals his strength through weakness. You know, time and time again in the Bible, he reveals his strength through weakness in a way to where whenever you look at what happens, the only explanation you can come to is that God's hand himself was upon this. 
Right? If, if the Messiah came as a conquering king with political power right off the get-go, it'd be very easy to say that that was not actually God's hand. But what God's going to do in the, in the Christmas story is he's going to turn the entire world upside down with the most vulnerable of infants in the most vulnerable of cities in the most vulnerable of people in the entire Roman Empire. It just doesn't make sense that what happens happens unless it is of God. So just like Paul tells us in, in, in Corinthians about, you know, uh, my strength is sufficient or my grace is sufficient for you. I will show my two, true strength through your weakness. We see that kind of play out here in the Christmas story. So the first thing I want to do is we're going we're gonna to be contrasting here in the story with Herod the Great, the difference between strength and weakness as we submit to God and what worldly strength looks like. Herod is going to, King Herod is going to be the example of what the chasing of worldly power does, what, what, what it looks like to, to truly seek strength in this world, glory in this world, control in this world. And, and Christ is going to come as the perfect example of what it looks like to show God's strength through weakness. So I want us to start thinking, though, about this worldly power for just a second. And if you can, I want you to talk at your tables for just a minute. I want you to discuss where in your lives or in the lives of people around you, have, what have you seen happen when people really chase the pursuit of worldly power, uh, of worldly control? And, and I want to I make one rule in this question. As you're talking about what it looks like or yourself or people around you who have chased worldly power and control and what happens in that area, you're not allowed to talk about politicians. That's my one rule. Yeah, no politicians are allowed to be discussing this. So, so talk about that for just a little bit. I want you, but I want you to really think, think about people, either, whether it be yourself or others around you, who have truly chased the power structures of this world. What have you seen play out when that occurs? So talk it through and we'll come back. All right, well, let's, let's uh, regroup. I'm going to assume that what you guys probably talked about is, as you, is you talked about whether it be yourself or people around you you know or just people in the community that you may know uh, who have sought worldly power, I suspect it hasn't always ended well. Is that a good assumption uh, as I go through there? It's a good assumption. And let's just think about why that is. I mean, because I suspect that the majority of the times, that's probably what you've experienced. Why would that be? Right? And, and so we, as Christians, understand this as we are all fallen, sinful creatures. Right? We, we don't actually believe that we were born good. We, we believe that we've been born into sin. And so because of that, myself included, you know, I'm not special by any means, uh, as we accumulate power, we accumulate that power with our sinful nature, and over time that power continues to corrupt us and corrupt us and corrupt us, until a lot of times we end up paranoid, control freaks, uh, egotistical, arrogant. Uh, power is a corrupting influence as we seek it for our own gain, whatever that may be. Normally you end up seeking power for one reason. It may be for a good reason. And as you continue to seek that power more and more, you get to be more and more concerned you're going to lose power and lose control. That leads to a paranoia. And it just seems to be the normal cycle people go down there. That pursuit of power and greed, maybe coming from pride or something else, is something we probably all experience. It's not, it's not uncommon. Uh, it's very similar to some of the original issues in the fall, right? 
Now, if you, it, the founding fathers of this country understood that as a truth. If you go back to some of the original philosophy done by Locke over across the pond, you, know, you would understand that, that this depravity of the humankind uh, will lead to this issue. So if you look at how America was set up, we were set up to try to limit the amount of power that could continue to be accumulated over time. You look at the way our politicians are set up with term limits. You look at the way our estate taxes are done. You look at every aspect of how our government was set up. The big issue they were trying to solve was how could you limit accumulating power, generational accumulating power, because it ends in corruption, greed, and just trouble. Um, So there was a lot of wisdom that came from our founding fathers that was really based on biblical principles of the depravity of man. If we believe we're all born good and it's just, you know, watching bad TV shows that corrupts us, that's actually just not how we believe mankind works, and that'll lead us down a different area of government. But what you're going to see in this story, the reason I want to make sure we all understand that truth is you're going to see the extreme example of that in Herod the Great. And so I want to read this Christmas story real fast uh, out of the Bible. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read 1 to 16. And I want you to just keep that in your mind, that corrupting influence of power uh, in your mind as you read what Herod does in this story. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Uh, Just as a quick aside, were the wise men there on the day of Jesus' birth? No, yeah, yeah, not in the nativity scene, actually. Anyway, that's, that's, anyway, Um, blows everybody's mind. Uh, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And it goes back to that prophecy from Micah that I just said. Then in verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. We're not going to dive into that, but that's a whole other lesson one day we can do. Verse 16, we're going to end on this. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. 
it's a really tough story, right? I mean, you read that, and that's, that's not easy to absorb uh, that that would occur. I mean, um, you know, he literally ordered the execution of every male under two years old in, in Bethlehem, in this little town of Bethlehem. And so what I want to do is I want to get you in the mind of Herod just a little bit. I want, I want you to really leave this class today knowing Herod the Great really well because it's going to shape this story, but it's also going to shape a lot of the other stories we see in the New Testament. Herod, Herod the Great really only gets mentioned in this story for, in, in most detail, but you're going to see Jesus and his followers go into lots of places in the New Testament that are really formed because of Herod the Great. So let me just give you some background on this guy. Uh, Herod and his father were both loyal to the Romans. Um, his father was an advisor to the Roman emperor, uh, and so the family loyalty and the connections that they had to Rome uh, landed Herod this kind of governor role uh, at the age of 25. His father was killed, and he was assassinated, and at the time his father was assassinated, Herod fled to Rome to make sure he didn't get killed as well. Um, he kind of sucks up to the emperor, it seems like, and then he gets crowned king of Judea, Right, uh, returning back to Jerusalem in 39 BC. Herod, at this point in time, he, he gains control of all the land. He kind of squashes some little Jewish rebellions. Uh, he becomes the power uh, in that area. There's, there's kind of three major phases of Herod's reign. The first 10 years of his reign, he kind of consolidated power, squashed rebellions, made sure taxes were flowing. He did a very good job making sure the Romans could trust him in the first 10 years that he was in reign. He was in power. The second 10 years, everything's relatively peaceful, uh, and Herod becomes Herod the Great. I mean, I mean the, the reason that they call him Herod the Great is not because he was good to the people. It was because of some of the amazing things that he did. You're going to find Herod was an engineering genius. I mean, he was way, he was hundreds of years ahead of his time in terms of his engineering uh, acumen. And so he goes and he builds a lot of really impressive projects, which I'm going to talk through here in just a second, because when you talk through the, the, what he built, you can understand his psyche. The last 10 years of his reign, which, which really culminates in the time of Christ, uh, he's got all kinds of strife and misunderstandings, and you see Herod seeping down further and further into this utter area of paranoia that he's going to lose control or be killed or, or that he, he, he's going to be, his power is going to be usurped by his kids. I mean, it's just a, a crazy, crazy thing that, that he ends up going through. And so... What I want to show you is, is, let's go through in your note page if you can. I want to talk about these four major projects that he built that you're going to read about in the New Testament. Uh, the first one is Caesarea Maritima, and there is a really, really handsome man uh, standing on the top of those aqueducts right there. Uh, I don't know who he is. I just saw that picture. I was like, man, that is a good-looking guy. He kind of looks like this, you know, from the back. So this is a picture of uh, us in Israel. I got to go to Israel with a couple of guys in here. Uh, Caesarea Maritima was this, I mean, awesome deal. I mean, just listen to the name, Caesarea Maritima. This is, this is Herod sucking up to Rome, uh, is what this is. And so right there on the sea, he built this incredible port system where he could then make sure that what he controlled became one of the most sought-after trade routes in all the known world at the time. If it's a sought-after trade route, he could control the trade flow of some major goods, and then he could make a whole lot of money, and that he did. Not only was it good for trade, it was just built in overall extravagance. Uh, the very first infinity pool that was ever built by man was built right here at Caesarea Maritima. 
And think about it, he is in the middle of the sea, or this port goes out into sea to allow the, the boats and everything to dock. He built a palace, and he wanted, his, he wanted a swimming pool, for the most part, to overlook the ocean. And instead of salt water in his swimming pool, he wanted fresh water, as I would too, right? I mean, you would want fresh water in your pool. So he would literally have fresh water pumped into his infinity pool that would go out into the sea. I mean, just, you know, pretty impressive, honestly, from the engineering standards, how he did it. But it was just extravagant. It was all set up to really impress Rome and to show that he was worthy of Roman glory, not just not Jewish glory. Uh, you go into the ruins here, and you can still see just how incredible it was. There was a hippodrome that had been built, like where the chariots would race. There was a big amphitheater that had been built. Uh, he brought the Olympic Games to this area. And we can all thank Herod the Great for the fact that we have a gold, a silver, and a bronze medal at the Olympic Games. They used to only give out medals for the winner. But, but Herod wanted to lure all the upper echelon of the Roman society to Caesarea Maritima to show it off once he got it done. And so the way he did it is for the Olympics, as they hosted him there, he wanted to have three medals to make it a bigger event. And so they came there. Later on in early church history, you know, well, well after this, that hippodrome uh, that was there was actually used to torture Christians and to kill Christians. And so they had sand in the Hippodrome. You think back to like the old gladiator movies. Uh, they had sand there in the Hippodrome, and they would literally put Christians out in there, and, and they would release lions who would just devour uh, the, the Christians of the early church. And they did it there because the sand would cover up all the blood. And so it's just, I mean, there, there's a lot of history that occurred in this area. But he did this to gain power and glory and fame uh, from the Romans, and, and that he did. This other area, uh, let's talk about Masada real quick. Masada was a mountain fortress that was down south right next to the Dead Sea. So this is a long ways away from Jerusalem, right next to the Dead Sea in the middle of the desert. And Herod started to get a bit concerned that somebody was going to try to kill him. And Masada was, a, was the outcome of that paranoia. So remember, this is all going on in the, in, in the real world, in real politics, in the middle of the Roman Empire. And you guys know a couple names from history from the Roman Empire. You know this guy named Mark Antony, and you know this guy named Octavius uh, or Augustus. And Mark Antony and, and Octavian or Augustus had, had been battling for power uh, in Rome. And Herod had pledged his loyalty to Mark Antony. And we all remember what happened to that guy. You know, it didn't work out too well for him. He loses. And so Herod quickly tries to go to the other team, going back to Augustine, saying, hey, no, I'm going to be loyal to you now. I know that was my boy, but you're my boy now. And um, Augustine pretty much said, okay, that's fine. You can stay in power, but you're going to be on a short leash. So Herod got paranoid that the Romans were going to eventually come for him. And he goes, if the Romans don't come for me, maybe the Jewish people are going to uprise and rebel against me if they don't think Rome has my back. And so he built Masada on the top of this massive mountain in the desert to be a final resort, a final escape if he really had to have one. Uh, we don't actually believe Herod even ever went to Masada. But when you look at this place, it almost seems impossible to even get to it. Uh, the, the, if you look on the backside of that fortress, there's this kind of ramp that goes up, this dirt ramp that goes up. That actually wasn't there when it was originally built. Uh, 
Herod brought slave labor to Masada, thousands upon thousands of slaves, to literally walk up with scoops of dirt and sand and pour it out to create a pathway for them to get up. I mean, thousands would have died. There was no natural water source anywhere nearby. You had to go a few miles to get to a fresh water source. Uh, just incredible uh, what it, what it all the the engineering that occurred here though he had he had a cool spring sauna uh, built inside Masada in the middle of the desert with no fresh water uh, the engineering like I said is is impeccable but I want you to see this as this was his escape in case he was they came after him the other thing you see you're gonna, you're going to hear more about than anything in the New Testament is the temple reconstruction um, you know Herod is king of Judea. And, and so he is ruling the Jewish people, and he obviously wants to appease the Jewish people. And all the Jewish people are going to be looking back to the glory days of Israel under David and Solomon and the beautiful temple that was constructed. You remember the people had gone back in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the wall, but they hadn't built the temple anywhere near back to the glory and the grandeur that it was in the days of Solomon. And so Herod takes it upon himself to start to reconstruct the temple, to make it more glorious and majestic than it was before. And so we always hear the words, or you may be familiar with the Temple Mount, you know, the the mountain that the temple is on. You know, that goes back to the time of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. You know, Jeff talked about that, where where, uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Right there on on Mount Moriah is where the Temple Mount is today and where this temple was constructed. And it was, you know, what you hear, it's a mount, it was a mountain. Well, Herod didn't like that, uh, and so he actually leveled the mountain and made it completely flat and then built up this glorious temple and the courtyards and everything. And the way he did it is he, you'll see in this Masa- uh, Herodium coming up next, he did it in a way where he could see it from his escape fortress. He could always see the temple. Uh, but this was beautiful. I, I mean, the, if, if you look at the pictures of Jerusalem today, and you know where the uh, Dome of the Rock is, that blue do- um, a Muslim mosque uh, that is in uh, Jerusalem today, that is right where the temple would have been. And uh, the, that, that Dome of the Rock is this beautiful structure that you always see along the skyline of Jerusalem. This temple would have stood over two times higher than, than the, the peak of the, where the Dome of the Rock is today. So like I said, this was a massive, massive structure that he engineered. Some of the stone that is still there today, like if you go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall today, which would have been the far western side of this temple, what's left of it, uh, when you go and you look at some of the stone that was brought in for the foundation, uh, engineers today still can't understand how that happened. They cannot understand how they got the rock as big as it is into the structures and places that it is. I mean, Herod was a genius. I mean, you need to understand, he was, he was an absolute genius in what he constructed. And then the last thing that I wanted to talk about, and probably the most important thing to talk about, is this thing called the Herodium. Herodium, obviously named after Herod, uh, he built this himself. So right outside of Jerusalem, uh, Herod figured out that he needed to make sure that, like I said, if anyone ever came for him, he had a quick escape. And so he built the Herodium to be his quick escape from Jerusalem. And, and, and this is the peak of his paranoia. He, he built this, and let me just kind of tell you what was going on in his life. Herod had married 10 women, and he'd had 15 kids by them. Uh, he was so protective of his favorite wife, Miriam, that uh, whenever he would go away on a trip, 
he would actually give orders to his guards that if anything happened to him, to kill Miriam because he didn't want anyone else to have her, right? Uh, he then got really, really paranoid about her. And after she started getting upset that he had killed her parents because he didn't like her parents, so he killed them. Uh, after she got upset about that, and then after Herod's sister said, I don't really like that Miriam wife of yours, he then executed his favorite wife. After that, um, he was just you know a little upset and became ill, and he then ordered the execution of his two sons he had had with her over suspicion that they were trying to jockey for his power uh, once he was gone. That just wasn't going to work out very well. Uh, when he died, he was buried in this palace called Herodium. We'll, we'll get into a little more detail about. And he had two commands that he gave to, to kind of his underlings about what to do after he died. The first command was that he wanted the people of Jerusalem and, and all of Israel, he wanted them to be mourning whenever he died. He wanted them to be sad and distraught. But he knew that they wouldn't be sad because of his death. So what he did is he arrested some Jewish elders, and he said, the day I die, I want you to execute all of these Jewish elders so that the people will be mourning in the town. He wanted wailing for somebody, even if it wasn't himself. Interesting dude, right? I mean, this is, this is an interesting guy. When you hear these sayings, you go, oh, I can actually see how he would order the execution of all these little boys, right? The second thing he said is uh, he had another son, and he goes, I don't quite think that guy's the right guy, and he may try to get power, so kill him too whenever I die. So once he died, uh, three of his sons who were remaining, actually he, they split the kingdom into three of his sons, and so whenever you read some of the other stories in the New Testament, you may see Herod referenced uh, after his death, and that's Herod Antipas, which is one of his sons. So I just want to make sure you guys see that and don't get confused when you get a little bit further on into the biblical stories after Herod the Great had died. The reason I wanted to talk about Herodium, though, is that this is going to get us back into our story we read about the Christmas story. And the Herodium is right outside of Jerusalem. Like I said, it was his escape route. And this mountain, if you kind of look at it, it's this big mountain that goes up. And you look at that and you go, well, that seems like a pretty good place for a fortress. You're going to be high and elevated. You can see anyone coming, uh, which, which is true. But Herod had learned the lessons from, from the engineering the Assyrians had done way back when. And the Assyrians had figured out that when you were going to go and, and you know, siege uh, cities and palaces, that you could take those big rock walls and you could take out one of the pillars of the rock walls and then set fire to the stone, and the stone would then crumble and you could invade the walls. So Herod goes, well, that's not going to happen to me. If I'm holed up, I'm holed up. That's not going to be an issue. And so he goes, I want to build a fortress inside a mountain. He picked this one, and he goes, well, the mountain's not big enough. It needs to be bigger. So he literally tried to change nature, right? I mean, he, he had his slaves build up the mountain artificially with dirt, and then he built his fortress within it. Everything Herod did in his time, he was trying to show that he actually had power over nature itself. He was building saunas and springs inside desert fortresses. He was, he was changing the way water flow worked into the sea. He was, he was changing what an actual mountain was in the Herodium. So he could stand upon the top of Herodium inside that fortress, look upon the temple, and look upon his entire kingdom uh, there right outside of, of Jerusalem. Now, 
God is more clever than we give him credit for at times. We can read these Bible stories and just kind of sit there and look at it on face value, but every layer you want to, you can get deeper and deeper and deeper and find just some incredible wisdom and beauty in what God does. Herod is the, Herod is the absolute extreme example of what it looks like to be corrupted by the pursuit of power, the need for control, the egomania, the paranoia that occurs as he tries to maintain his power. And God is going to come say, he goes, I'm going to turn all that upside down and watch how I do it. So I told you the, the, the prophets had said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Well, we always sing that song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and I never quite understood that until I actually stood on top of the Herodium and I looked out on the little town of Bethlehem. You see, in the right sunlight, uh, when the sun sets, this fortress that Herod had built in the Herodium, this fortress would cast a physical shadow over the little town of Bethlehem, an actual shadow. Herod could have stood up at the top of the Herodium, and when he gave the order to execute all of those young kids, he could have watched his soldiers carrying out those orders. Bethlehem is right at the footsteps of the Herodium. And so God says this, he goes, you think you have all the power, and you've seen what that has done to you. But I'm going to show you power in a much different way. I'm going to take the most vulnerable thing you can imagine, which is an infant, in the little clan that doesn't even belong in the tribes of Judah in Bethlehem, in the shadow of what you believe to be greatness, and that is where my king is going to come. That is where absolute power is going to come from. I want you to read this story and just realize God, God does so much. I mean, just so much in this little bitty description of where he brings Jesus Christ into this world, right in the shadow of what Herod believed to be greatness. So what I'd like to, to do today, just as we conclude, is I want to talk about, about that in your groups for just a little bit, is... We, we try so often in our lives to be the people who build our own power, to build our own glory, to, to create the shadows that everyone else lives in. And God tries to tell us over and over in the Bible that true power comes from weakness. True power comes only from Jesus Christ. It is he who provides the powers in this world. And if you want to experience actual power... You have to surrender, right? Absolute surrender. His power comes through our weakness. And even though it seems counterintuitive, we're not taught that in our society. He's saying, if you surrender to me, you can then experience the power that comes in a life in Christ. It just is going to be very different than the pursuit of power that comes whenever you chase the power structures of this world. And so we're all, though, dealing with those things that, that we're living in the shadows of, the, the, the corruption, the power, the greed, the arrogance, the pride, whatever it may be that may be casting a shadow over us, we're all dealing with those things. It's all making it harder for us to surrender at those times. And so I would, I would just ask you to do this. Take a few minutes at your table and, and just talk through what, what is it in your life right now uh, that, that is just causing you... To, to be in the shadow of, of a power structure. I mean, what, what is it that's overhanging over you? And, and what can we be doing as groups? Just help each other to say, look, 
we know that we want to chase these things. We know that, that the world tells us over and over again to chase this, and that will make us happier. That will give us a, a, a pride and ambition. Uh, but, but how can we be helping ourselves surrender just like God taught us here? His absolute strength is found in, in weakness. I had coffee this morning uh, with a gentleman here in our church who was uh, just making a big life decision. And he had been offered one of the most incredible jobs he could imagine. I mean, just it was a dream job. And it was going to require, though, him to sacrifice all the things he thought God was asking him to do in his life. Uh, It was going to require him to sacrifice time with his family. It was going to require him to sacrifice uh, the community he had built. It was going to require him to sacrifice the uh, service he had been done. No one was on the same page, but he, as, as any of us would, he wanted to chase this power. Right, this absolute power. What is it in your life right now that might be hanging over you today as we go into this Christmas season? What is it that's keeping us uh, from really concentrating on the one who was born in the shadows and overcame it all? Let me pray for us, and then we can talk that out, and then I will see you guys back January 8th uh, as we kick off a new series. Father, I thank you for these men. Thank you for our church. Thank you for your word. Most importantly, I thank you for Jesus Christ, the Savior you sent. Uh, I thank you that you brought him into this world, that you came into this world to save us. Uh, I thank you that you save us from the pursuit of things that will lead us nowhere, uh, that will lead us to death. That the Messiah came, that our Savior came at the exact right time in history into the most incredible of dynamics, and you overcame everything. You overturned empires with an infant born in the weakest of circumstances. If you can do that, how can we not trust in you? May you give us the faith we need in this time to reject the temptations of this world and to trust in you. May we be weak because we know you are strong and that you will give us the strength we need to do whatever it is that pleases you and that gives us a life of joy in you. May you watch over these men in the Christmas season. May they be great leaders in our community and in their families. May your name be glorified in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.